Before we get started, a quick note. This podcast features explicit language and descriptions of abuse and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Also, if you're just joining us, this is a continuing story, so please listen to the previous episodes first. By the mid-2000s, interest in Polybius had waned, and its legend was all but forgotten, except in the deepest corners of the internet. But all that changed on March 20, 2006, when a man named Stephen Roach posted a confession of sorts to coinop.org, the very website the Polybius legend first appeared on. And Stephen Roach claims to have been one of the people who worked on Polybius. That's Joe Streckert, a Portland journalist and tour guide who you may remember from episode one, performing before a live audience. According to his post on coinop.org, back in 1978, Stephen Roach was attending Masaryk University in what is today the Czech Republic, when he and two other friends began working as circuit board programmers. They called their nascent company Sinislosion and were soon contracted by South American investors to develop an arcade game for the burgeoning North American market. You guessed it, Polybius. Here's Joe again. And this post that he writes, it is one of the longest, sloggiest, most unreadable things that I have ever crammed into my eyeballs. To give you an idea of the quality of writing that this guy has, he spells his company name wrong twice, and he spells his own name wrong twice. <laughs> Here we go. Here's Stephen Roach claiming to be a member of the people who made Polybius. He says, quote, after the release, we received terrible news. A 13-year-old boy from the Lloyd District of Portland, Oregon, had suffered an epileptic fit while playing the game only six days after the machines had literally been installed. One of the senior employees that I knew very well contacted me to tell me that it caused immense ripples of panic throughout the company who were of the opinion that they had, quote, created a monster, unquote, as such. We disbanded Sineschlossen shortly afterwards because we didn't want to restrict ourselves to the stringent deadlines of other companies in favor distancing ourselves from the game in case of any lingering recriminations which could have done a great deal of damage to our personal and professional reputation which was our livelihood and with some of us having very young families, that was extremely important to us. Wow, that was a long sentence. All kidding aside, Stephen Roach's post was met with the same level of skepticism as the legend itself. Somewhat plausible, but come on, pretty unlikely. And yet, in spite of this, his message reinvigorated the public's interest in Polybius. But the one person with the most to gain from the renewed attention was not happy at all. Years later, where I found this post about Polybius and this person claiming to be a programmer behind it. And it was total bullshit, everything they were talking about. I could just tell it was not authentic. That's Bobby, the Polybius tour guide who claims to have played an unnamed arcade game as a teenager that shared many similarities with Polybius and alleges it may have factored in his abduction. This clearly was not a mind behind the game that I played. It, it was just, there was such a level of sophistication and ideas that this person clearly didn't have. It was just laughable to me. But as it turns out, there was nothing funny about Stephen Roach. Stephen Roach turned out to be a horrible, horrible douchebag. <laughs> Joe Streckert. Yeah, he ended up uh, running a reform academy with his wife called Morova Academy. And Morova Academy was one of those places where 
parents who had kids that would run away, they would contract Roach and his wife to hunt down their kids. And the reform included things like restricting their sleep schedules, controlling how often they could use the bathroom, playing loud music at them. And in 2011, uh, Roach and his wife, they were convicted of child trafficking, fraud, and unlawful confinement. Yeah. A really weird thing about this is that the guy who, you know, claimed to be a part of this video game that really is all about, you know, mind control and emotional manipulation was in real life trying to mind control and emotionally manipulate people. So Stephen Roach, uh, not a good writer and horrible human being. But like all things involving Polybius, maybe there was more to this story. Maybe Stephen Roach wasn't quite who Joe thought he was. The allegations against Stephen Roach are one of the more bizarre digressions in Polybius lore, one that co-producer Todd Luoto and I first encountered in the pages of Retrocade magazine at the pen of journalist Catherine Despira. Her assertion that Roach was involved in the legend, even if he only perpetuated a hoax, was compelling enough to warrant further investigation. But what really struck us was that aspects of his story, a story that wasn't told publicly until 2006, shared certain similarities with another piece of evidence we discovered, dating all the way back to 1981. A coincidence or a possible connection? I'm John Frechette. This is The Polybius Conspiracy, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. Hi, I'm Ruben. We spoke on the phone. Hi, Hi. nice to meet you. Naomi Halbert. Hi, Todd. Nice to meet you. After Ruben met Bobby, everything changed. Each held a clue the other was seeking. In Bobby, Ruben had discovered troubling insights regarding his missing partner, Mark Sims, and a possible motive for his disappearance. And in Ruben, Bobby found a lead that could finally lend his story credibility. It was the newspaper article featuring Mark's photograph, the new Knights of Entertainment, which appeared in the Tualatin Tribune back in October of 1981. Someone from the media had been to Coin Kingdom just days before Bobby's alleged abduction, and there was a photograph, which meant there might be others, outtakes that included glimpses of the fabled Polybius cabinet. It was a long shot, and both Bobby and Reuben knew it, but when we found Naomi Halbrook, the author of the article, living in Spokane, Washington, there was no way the four of us, Reuben, Bobby, myself, and co-producer Todd Luoto weren't going to pay her a visit. I found this article uh, that you'd written uh, about the the new knights of entertainment at a uh, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah yeah This is a picture of of Mark Mark Sims. He's uh, 15 here. Yeah, that would have been right when I started there. Naomi was just 22 straight out of college, when she got a job at the Tribune. She was highly motivated and idealistic, but whether it was her lack of experience or the sexism of the newsroom, she quickly found the reality of the job stifling. I mean, I was really the only woman working for the Tribune. I mean, there was a couple of secretaries, but certainly in terms of reporters, it was just me. And 
you know, I wanted to kind of take the angle of like, you know, what is these new arcades and these video games doing to the kids? And yeah, Don just pretty much killed that idea and was like, no, we're just gonna cover the uh, winners of this big tournament. Don was Naomi's editor. That's what the article was basically, is my best attempt to make a serious pitch and turned out just to be scores and, you know, 12-year-old boys. I don't remember you there. Uh, oh. I mean, uh, I saw a photo of you when you were younger and I didn't recognize, I mean, I didn't see you there. When, when were you there? That's Bobby asking the questions. I mean, I just went in for this tournament. It was, you know, that was, I, I don't even know if it was an all-day thing. I, I, I think I remember. It, it was an all-day oh, thing. Oh, okay, okay, Not yeah. So you weren't there the I could have been, I don't know, but I would imagine that, I mean, normally when we did articles, especially if it was something that was like an all-day event, we <clears throat> wouldn't be there the whole day, you know, because the tribune, you know, had a very small staff. A lot of us were freelancers. Uh, some of us were volunteers. Unsurprisingly, there was no way to track down the negatives from the day's shoot. With that out of the way, there was one last desperate question we all had on our minds, and it was Reuben who asked it. There was a, a video game at Coin Kingdom at the time, in a plain black, unmarked cabinet. No. Bobby, am I getting this right? I don't, but it's weird that it would be this article that you're bringing up. There was one weird thing that kind of happened right after the Tribune had published it, and it was right around Halloween, and, you know, we get a lot of pranks. We did get this really weird cassette. A cassette tape? Like a, an audio tape? Yeah, and, um... Basically, we just considered it a prank. Like someone's just trying to, you know, screw with me. I'm a young female journalist, got it a lot, you know, and... Can we, can we hear the tape? Yeah, absolutely. I actually um, just got it out last night. The cassette arrived in a plain manila envelope, no return address, although it was postmarked from Oregon City, about a half hour south of Portland which was certainly suspicious, given the contents of the tape. Testing one, two, uh, hello. Uh, I make recording because I hear a missing Feldstein boy. So there's two things that became apparent to us immediately. There's no way that accent was real. And the boy he refers to is Bobby. Myself, my friend Stefan, and Ulrich were computer students at Masaryk University. Masaryk University, the very university name-checked by Stephen Roach in his 2006 confession. The voice on the tape goes on to tell of how he and his two friends were recruited to work on a project at the university, after hours, shepherded by a man he referred to only as the doctor. The project was simple, arcade game. Every month they send money, so I do my job, no questions. We design again for the cabinet. That was what the doctor cared most about. The cabinet. The game itself is not important. What the voice on the tape goes on to describe, this unnamed game he worked to develop, 
less than a year before one like it would purportedly show up on the floor of Bobby's local arcade, also sounds an awful lot like Stephen Roach's Polybius story, at least in the setup. Three friends designing a mysterious game for a third party. The recorded narrative differs in that the intense secrecy around the project piqued the voice's curiosity as he began to suspect that the doctor was not really at the helm, but rather just another lackey, much like himself. There was men who came to lab. It was the only time I see the doctor afraid. I never found name of this man, but I never forget his hand. Three fingers. The look on Bobby's face at that moment was indescribable. A three-fingered man. In and of itself, nothing significant. But as the cassette played on, it became almost impossible not to think of the tale of Bobby's abduction and the figures that followed him home. I just heard footsteps coming towards me, and then they grabbed me. Their hands were just all over me, and one hand felt so weird and foreign. It wasn't a regular hand. It didn't have all its fingers. The mystery surrounding the project and this three-fingered man's sinister visits prompted the voice to return to the university lab after hours to investigate why exactly the doctor and his staff were obsessing over a simple game cabinet. But the voice didn't find answers, only more questions, as he encountered locked doors, screams echoing behind them. Next morning, Stefan tells us he is traveling to the United States with the game, phase two of the project. I leave company after that. Doctor asks me to stay, but I say I find a job that pay more money. Phase two, the game bound for the United States. Again, the parallels to Stephen Roach's confession are uncanny, but in this story, there would be no product recall. A female friend who worked on the doctor's team disclosed that the cabinet had been engineered around a set of electromagnetic coils, coils that emitted pulses in conjunction with the gameplay a process known as Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, TMS, that they can affect brainwaves and change behavior. It was shortly after this that the voice began receiving phone calls late at night. When he answered, there'd only be heavy breathing, then a dial tone. He began to suspect that someone was coming into his apartment when he wasn't home. Windows would be open when he was certain he'd closed them. One night, he was awakened by a breeze and went to shut the window, only to glimpse a man standing on the street below, staring up at him. The man with three fingers. I fear I am, in a way, responsible for what has happened to this boy in your city. Look closer than what is in front of you. Look for what is in the game, in the machine. You would... And that was it, frustratingly truncated. Now it's easy to believe that this was nothing more than a prank. And in 1981, there would have been no reason not to arrive at that conclusion. We would have written it off as someone messing with Naomi, perhaps riffing on local lore. But the number of connections between the tape, Bobby's story, and Stephen Roach's post just seemed a little too weird. And then there was the conversation we had with Clay Calgill. So Polybius is, is, it's interesting on a couple of levels for me. As one of the owners of Ground Control, Portland's premier retrocade, Clay Cowgill is steeped in arcade history and is also someone who's made a career of restoring and modifying classic arcade games. 
Portland setting, of course, is, is local. And if you live in Portland or know enough about Portland, and I think probably Portlandia even waves this flag to a certain degree, it kind of makes sense that something like that would turn up here. When we began investigating the legend, Clay was one of the first people we interviewed. We figured with his wealth of knowledge and history in the area, he'd be able to tell us if something like Polybius was even possible. Certainly, if you look at the time when the machine was supposedly out there, and you kind of look at the technology that was around, it's, you, know, you can you put together a plausible case. I mean, there's certainly people were messing with infrasonics back then, you know, sub-audio frequencies for various effects. Um, you've got uh, uh, transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation is sort of pre-actual research, but you know people were working on it. This interview was conducted before we heard Naomi's tape. So I hope you can imagine our surprise when this relatively obscure medical term popped up in an audio recording from 1981. Although TMS was intended to treat mental disorders by stimulating or inhibiting brain activity with electricity, here we have a potential cause for the various symptoms teenagers who played Polybius were alleged to have suffered, although the science behind it is extremely questionable if you do some research. Not to mention, TMS wasn't invented until 1985, but still, according to Clay, and if you kind of swirl them all in together in a you know big uh, cloak and dagger sort of way, it's like yeah, maybe you could make a machine that was actually capable of doing something like that. You know, certainly placing it somewhere where everybody thinks everything is a myth and an herbal legend to begin with, kind of smart cover. What were we to make of all this? Were Naomi's cassette and Stephen Roach's post connected, or were the similarities sheer coincidence? The other thing we had to establish was whether the Stephen Roach who authored the 2006 post was the same one from Morava Academy, the residential reform facility in the Czech Republic, where A. Stephen Roach and his wife Glenda were administrators in the late 1990s. He quoted Polybius, the philosopher, right? The writer from ancient Greece. Catherine Despira, the journalist who debunked the Polybius arcade game, investigated the abuses at Morava Academy as part of her expose and concluded that the two Stephen Roaches in question were in fact one and the same. He would quote Polybius to the kids. And when I heard that from one of the survivors, I went, this is the guy. Roach also reportedly designed video games for the kids at Morava Academy to play. They were storyline video games. They weren't, you know, space shooters or anything like that. Survivors do report that Stephen Roach was very proud of them. None of this suggests that Stephen Roach was one of the creators of the Polybius arcade game, but rather that he may have helped to perpetuate the hoax. Through Cat, we reached out to Icy Parr and Jenny Travis, two survivors of Morava Academy, neither of whom were all that shocked to hear Roach's name mentioned in connection with Polybius. Here's Icy. All I can picture is Steve standing there with his big old mustache holding his big-ass coffee cup, smelling like cigarettes, and he was just not all there. Jenny Travis. Steve, he's really enormous. I, I don't know if that's just my memory, but he's like six foot five, and he always talked about how he had these Doberman pinchers that if you tried to escape, they would ball and kill you. And he it was very dramatic. He wouldn't spend a lot of time with the girls. And, and now I realize it had maybe something to do with the fact that um, there was all these allegations of uh, sexual abuse. And I, I never knew if those were true. Although Morava and its parent organization, the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, 
or WASP, marketed themselves as a solution for troubled teens. The reality was alleged to have been much darker. And in terms of like the abuse that everybody claims happened, one girl got the brunt of it and she was kept in this, they called it observation placement, and it was a room with a mattress on the floor. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like the spirographs, you know, you, you have like a pan and you make a bunch of loops. <laughs> and anyway, they, they had this like little piece of paper with a spirograph and in the center they had a dot. And they had that the taped on the wall and they would make her stare at that. And I, I witnessed this because we all had to take turns bringing her food and she was only allowed a portion of what we were fed. And she, when I went up there, she was like duct taped, hog tied and staring at the dot. What they do is they tell your parents, like, they're going to lie to you and they're going to tell you anything to get home. And so they're going to make up these stories of abuse. So parents didn't believe you. Although the subterfuge may have worked on some parents, this wasn't the first time Stephen and his wife faced serious accusations. The Roaches came to Morava from another WASP academy, Sunrise Beach, located in Cancun. Mexican authorities shut down Sunrise Beach in 1996 after allegations of abuse surfaced there. And although the Roaches were arrested, they managed to flee the country, only to resurface at Morava. According to ICE, word eventually reached Czech authorities. They removed eight of us, and how they picked us was it was who spent the most time in observation placement. And I was one of those eight. And we got taken to the police station and questioned, and there is when I heard some of the females claiming abuse. I mean, I was 15 and a, a bad person at the time, so, yeah, I lied, and I did tell police that they did things that they didn't do just so I could go home. Stephen and his wife were charged again, and once again managed to flee the country, this time disappearing for good. Their precise whereabouts are currently unknown, although they're rumored to be living in the Bahamas under assumed names. So the question remains, in the aftermath of all this scandal, if in fact Stephen Roach, this Stephen Roach, is the author of the Plebeus Post, why? I think Stephen Roach, like anybody else who discovers the internet and finds the world of forums, kind of reveled in, in being able to kind of recreate himself. Catherine Despira. After all those consecutive arrests and being thrown out of a country, he was looking for some sort of acceptance. And he had spied that so many people were into this, and he thought, aha, this is my way I could get some positive attention. Maybe he desperately needed it. And if that were the case, it's also possible that over the years, others adopted the Stephen Roach moniker in a similar bid for attention, wearing the name like a mask in subsequent posts and interviews. So really, it's possible the Stephen Roach connected to the urban legend isn't one person, but many until someone can track Roach down and ask him, face to face, whether he had anything to do with Polybius. His involvement, like the game itself, remains a mystery. While our investigation into Stephen Roach left many lingering questions, Naomi Halbrook and her enigmatic cassette brought forth some answers, none of which helped Bobby's case. Like any good journalist, Naomi didn't write the cassette off immediately. 
but did some investigating to see if any of its claims could be substantiated. And she started with the missing Feldstein boy, who it turns out wasn't missing at all. He had told one kid he had been abducted by aliens. He told another kid he had run away. Some other kid said he was constantly always telling, you know, these big tales. Did you ever try to interview the boy? I do remember I did a phone interview with his parents, and they they said that, you know, our kid has a really big imagination. You know, he he loves to tell stories, looks for attention sometimes. So... Bobby said, so you bought that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are the parents, and there was no police uh, report. Uh, there was nothing official out there. There was no newspapers covering. No, there was a search. The police did a search. Uh, when I was reaching out and doing the research, none of that came up. So it was just sort of a, a rumor. I know for some... a fact that the kid who went missing was interviewed by the police seven times. I, I, well, I can't so Are you saying the chief of why. police is, it was lying? Or are you lying to me right now and you I, never actually did I that? I In all the interviews, if you had done your job right, diligence. you would have heard and, that I'm the fucking kid that was kidnapped and went missing, and you still don't even believe it even though the evidence is right underneath your nose. It's people like you who are supposed to be able to find people like me out there and seek and find justice, bring voice to the person who doesn't have a voice. I was already an outsider, already an outcast, and yes, I was a kid, and I couldn't socialize right. So yeah, I did say all kinds of shit, but that doesn't change all the bruises that were all over my legs or the way I just had, just my feet were mauled to shit. Just like the experiences, the headaches that I'd have, all all those issues, the going to the hospital. It's like, I wasn't making that stuff up. Having a tape like that, that has everything in it, you clearly would have heard things that aligned between stories that I was telling, because I kept telling the story to everybody. Yes, it did change a couple times, because I was still processing it. Listen, I talked to your parents, and they said that you were a pathological liar. And I'm sorry to say this in front of everyone here with the crew, but that pretty much ended the story for me. You know, I couldn't go to my editor, who already didn't have a lot of respect for me, and then come and say, hey, I got this great story about this 12-year-old kid who's kidnapped by a three-fingered person that's connected to this tape. Oh, and by the way, his parents say he's a pathological liar. Don't you see? See, you got dumped. That's all it takes. Someone's like, his credibility's garbage, and then everyone writes you off. I've been told all this shit my whole fucking life. Thank you for coming. It seemed as though, like the case of Stephen Roach, it was hard to tell where the truth ended and the lies began. For all of his professed disgust of Roach, maybe Bobby was more like him than he cared to admit. Both men so desperate for attention, they made the story of Polybius a part of their story. See the shit I've had to put up with? You said you see the shit that I've had to always put up with? Yeah, we heard you, Bobby. Of all of us, Reuben seemed the most disappointed, ripe with the knowledge that he'd likely been conned, his vulnerability exploited. At the moment, it was hard to fathom what any of us had been thinking to let it go as far as we had. But by the time we dropped Bobby off down the street from Coin Kingdom, we had a voicemail from Naomi that made us reconsider everything. Hey, guys. Um, you know, after some thought, I, I think I owe you an explanation about our meeting. And um, 
you know, I guess I didn't tell you everything. And I think that, um, you know, this is something that's probably been long overdue. And give me a call back when you can. Thanks. The Polybius Conspiracy is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The series is produced by Todd Luoto and myself, and executive produced by Julie Shapiro. Original artwork for each episode is by Jin Lim. Music for this episode was composed by Rishikesh Hirway, Restricted, and Ananon. You can learn more about all of them and see bios for everyone we interview at radiotopia.fm showcase. I'm John Frechette. The mystery of Polybius continues next week.